0: This is the Untamed Ethos Podcast. Join us as investment pros, executives, and other experts talk business, personal growth, investing, politics, and the trending topics well-rounded pros need to know about. Authentic, unfiltered, and fun. Joshua Wilson is the founder of United Ethos Wealth Partners, a registered investment advisor. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of United Ethos's investment advice on this podcast, and nothing you'll hear on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. All opinions expressed by Joshua and by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of United Ethos or its affiliates. Welcome back to Untamed Ethos. I'm Joshua Wilson, and with me today, as usual, is Dr. Vicks, Russell Rhodes. And our guest, Dan Weisskopf. Dan Weisskopf is the lead ETF strategist at ETF Think Tank and also portfolio manager of uh, the Block ETF, which I forget the full name of that. You're going to have to remind me the, um, I should have had that written down. Transformational Data Sharing. Transformational Data Sharing ETF. Um, and really, my, my understanding is it doesn't directly invest in blockchain technology, but is, but is investing in the companies that are involved in utilizing blockchain, developing blockchain, and, and the like. Is that, is that correct, Dan? That is
1: correct. Uh, the Amplify Transformational Data Sharing ETF can hold actual Bitcoin. So we're targeting the opportunities... Around companies um, that are, you know, trying to capitalize on the trend, and in certain cases, we're getting some direct exposure as well, either through, um, you know, the ETFs that hold spot or MicroStrategy, um, which effectively is a company that holds one hundred and forty thousand Bitcoin. So just think about what the value is there. Absolutely.
0: Well, today we've got I've got a lot of questions for you, Dan. You know the this is a, a, a topic that continues to emerge, uh, blockchain, crypto. How blockchain is not exactly the same as crypto. It's one of those things that continually bugs me is those terms can be used interchangeably, but that's erroneous to to use those terms interchangeably. Uh, and investing in crypto is not necessarily the same thing as investing in in blockchain. Um, and obviously' you're, you're entering a conversation that Russell and I have been really coming into for a number of weeks is not just active versus passive and you know with uh, with, with a with Bitcoin which is a, a st- hopefully a store of value is kind of what the direction is hopefully going to or in a, in a currency um, that can be actively traded or just typically hold and that's the, the, that's typically what we hear is hold it, hold it, hold it versus a strategy that's more investing in this technology in um, over time um, this, that can be done more actively. You know, we've also been talking about the 60-40 portfolio um, you know, with the divergence of stocks and bonds. Obviously that portfolio didn't perform so well last year, stocks and bonds together. And so you're entering a conversation with Russell and I have been talking about where managers are going next how investors need to think about positioning their portfolio during a time like this. Obviously, alternatives um, is a big topic. And of course, what are alternatives is something we always have to continue to to drip on. Uh, Active ETFs has been the top of uh, of several conferences I've been to. That's top of the list of things people are talking about of active ETFs. And so, Dan, uh, you are are, are at the top of the list of folks that are kind of involved in these Species of alternatives, artificial intelligence, also plus uh, plus this these these emerging technologies. So it's it's a great pleasure to have you on the show today, Dan. Uh, why don't you start us off with telling us a little bit about your background and how did you get um, from where you're at in the industry to really focusing on blockchain? How did that how did that come about?
1: Well, by the way, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to, as you put it, having fun. Um, on the show, I, you know, I think when we were doing a show with Bob Elliott, like maybe two weeks ago, yeah. I made the statement while I was asking a question of Bob. So, okay, let's have some fun here. And Bob looked at me and goes, "We've been having fun the whole time, right? You remember <laughs> that, right?" So, um, listen, I, I think I've been an early adopter type my whole career. I started out uh, in a family office and launched a hedge fund uh, after I got some seed uh, from them when I started out it was 87 and then it was in the early 90s that I launched a hedge fund That was pretty early back then um and then I spent some time at UBS uh so I you know had the experience of the wirehouse um and then frankly the the um wirehouse wasn't for me because it was just too rigid um, I like the entrepreneurial spirit and, um, you know, have been involved with RIAs since then. You know, I I got into ETFs for a different reason, though. It's, 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 it's interesting because back in 1999, right, when dot-com was just about having, you know, giving birth, right, um, there was something called Rule FD, Full Disclosure. And, and that rule changed how I invested, meaning that you couldn't have the same kinds of conversations with the CFO and the CEO and, you know, candidly the head of human resources. You know, it was the rules changed because, well, the CFO couldn't give you the same guidance that you, you were used to, right? Never traded on inside information, don't get me wrong, but there was a level of due diligence that you um, uh, uh, you earned as a result of the conversations and time you spent with management that is now different, right? Um, Everybody has to get the same information at the same time. So it's how you put all the pieces together uh, that you learned from a due diligence meeting today, which is different. So that's how I got into the ETF space is, Long-winded answer uh, to my 20-year career focused on ETFs. And then in 2017, um, I got the bug on Bitcoin blockchain uh, after reading the paper, um, Satoshi white paper. And and you know, from there, it was, you know, kind of like how ETFs were going to change the asset management business. I saw how the blockchain was gonna change so many different industries. Um, decentralization of finance is a great example, and it's what people think about the blockchain most, but you know, it, the blockchain's gonna change how mortgages are done. It's gonna change how um, the supply chain is handled. It's gonna change, frankly, I, I hope, how the farmer
0: gets paid. No, that, that that makes a lot of sense you know and, and so you were getting into it in 2017 I can't remember if it was 2017 or 18 when Bitcoin contracts first became traded on the um, in the futures market the Cbo yeah and a little bit of background on that for for folks you know futures traditionally have been for commodities commodities that could be physically delivered. When you think of a commodity, you're thinking about everything from pork bellies to soybeans to wheat to corn and so on and so forth. Now, the commodities market or the futures market, as we call it um, now, is, is grown to include a variety of financial instruments. And those financial instruments have the ability to what we say, settle in cash. And by settling in cash, we mean that you you don't actually have to take delivery um, of, of these things, um, you know, you can close the contract out, swap it for cash. That can be a good thing, but it can also be problematic because, you know, Bitcoin futures will, I guess, always settle in cash, never actual Bitcoin, at least the way that the market is set up now. So Bitcoin is being treated sort of like a commodity, but it's it's not a commodity it's supposed to be a currency. And of course it would have to have a reliable, um, reliably store value to be considered a, a good currency or a reliable currency. Um, yet it's settled in a competing currency, which, you know, suggests that cash isn't going anywhere any time soon. And so, you know, it, a bar of you know a, a, a bushel of corn is a bushel of corn, a bar of gold's a bar of gold, but Bitcoin is not so easy to define. And so all of this was happening at around the time you were getting interested in blockchain. To me, this is, in my opinion, when I think of Bitcoin as becoming I think the term mainstream is, 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 is tough to define, but when you are now traded on an exchange um, as a futures contract, to me, that that's mainstream, at least in my, in my definition. Did the, uh, did, did, when you think about this intersection, we I mean, obviously, you know, Bitcoin depends on the blockchain and you think of cryptocurrency versus the blockchain. One of the things I mentioned before is people get these things confused is investing in cryptocurrency versus investing in the blockchain can you explain to us the, the difference in you know how cryptocurrencies may use the blockchain but for those of us that may not have a firm understanding of how the blockchain is useful outside of cryptocurrency let's remove cryptocurrency from the conversation for a bit and explain you know when you say it could, it could, it could revolutionize mortgages and how farmers get paid? Can you explain to us in, in, in terms that, and maybe even uh, maybe even give us some company names if you're if you can do that. That say, hey, this is how it could change how this company does this type of, of, of business. Give us some practical advice on how we how to understand how the how the blockchain will actually impact what we're already doing, other than cryptocurrency.
1: All right, Joshua, you 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 mixed a lot of different things up and I, I appreciate that right and it's so it's so confusing um so let me just remind everybody that actually bitcoin doesn't need the futures market at all right, right. i was talking to somebody this morning who bought bitcoin at, in 2010 right i wish i had done that but i didn't <laughs> um the futures market you know gives folks globally, I suppose, access to the price action of Bitcoin. And that's wonderful. Um, but uh, you don't necessarily need the futures market to own it. you can and, and, and the whole principle behind Bitcoin, frankly, well maybe not the whole principle, but you know the principle behind Bitcoin is actually you own the, the Bitcoin that is um, verified across the blockchain of that's all interconnected between a bunch of computers, right? That are verifying how the Bitcoin um, um, is calculated, right? That's, that's the important aspect of the Bitcoin mining um, uh, connectivity, right? A mining uh, piece of equipment can exist in New York City and Iowa, and also Ur- Uruguay, right? And they're all interconnected, verifying, making sure the chain works and that it's it's um, uh, permanent, right? Um, and updated correctly. And that's the, the utility value of Bitcoin and why um, it might have value as a store of value because it's not controlled by anybody. Right. But um, so so putting that part aside, then there's also uh, the safety aspect on how all these miners work together to make sure um, that not only is as as it evolves and people put things on chain, um, that it is a immutable, right? It can't be changed. And that it's constantly processing information, um, whether that's for transactions or just safety and security. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's it's it, I'll be honest. It's intangible and it's it's hard to put your arms fully around it, right? And and we all come from a perspective here in the U.S. Um, in God we trust, right? The US dollar, right? This little green thing, uh, piece of paper that is says it's worth a dollar, $5, $10, et cetera, right? And, and yet we keep printing more dollars, right? And for some reason, the dollar maintains that value against other currencies. And I think most people would say that, you know, that's great here in the US, but it actually hurts other countries. So when you, when you think about Bitcoin as a, quote, store of value, there are two ways to look at it. One, here in the U.S., yes, it's a store of value, but I don't know that we need today that store of value as related to the U.S. dollar, right? You know, we've got a currency that is very stable relative to everything else, but everything relative to our dollar is weakening, particularly where there is lots of inflation, right? And that's where Bitcoin has greater value in terms
0: of as a store of, of value. So as we start thinking about the you know, blockchain versus Bitcoin, and obviously I brought up the futures of, of, of Bitcoin when they began trading back when you were really, you, you were really getting very interested in this. And, you know, Russell, I know that at, at one point you were, I believe, the lead educator at the SIBO. Uh, on the Bitcoin futures uh, there. I know that didn't work out um, as quite as planned, but when you think about the significance of Bitcoin, like Dan mentioned, you don't have to have futures on Bitcoin. Bitcoin was traded for many years before uh, futures were ever created on Bitcoin. What's the significance, Russell, of the The futures beginning to be traded, and what does that tell us about the market and 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 the, uh, Bitcoin as an investment?
2: Well, the the futures it, it was interesting. Sibo launched the futures a week before CME Group did, and then after I left Sibo, they delisted the futures. But the futures, I think, on Bitcoin and Ethereum are, are around. What was when when? SIBO launched the Bitcoin futures. I was part of the roadshow. I got to go around Asia with the Winklevoss twins and talk to, uh, it was at the same time, it was around the same time that SIBO did a risk management conference in Hong Kong. So we kind of did double duty with that and had them speak at the uh, risk management conference in Hong Kong. Uh, What was interesting was the composition of people that showed up to hear about the futures. And probably the smartest guy in the room in one of these presentations was a guy that did nothing but lease computer equipment to Bitcoin miners. And he wanted a way to hedge himself um, in case Bitcoin crashed and all of his customers couldn't pay him anymore. So the, the... the, the, the thing that, that was kind of enlightening to me with respect to the futures and what you need to have a successful futures market is legitimate users. And speculating is not necessarily the legitimate user, uh, but hedging is as far as futures go. And there is a legitimate reason to hedge with Bitcoin futures. And if you've got, you know, like a, an indirect exposure to the price of Bitcoin, whether you're holding, did you say 140,000 Bitcoin? I was I, I got on my calculator that's 0.7% of all bitcoin outstanding. I was I was hoping I, I got my zero wrong once. Nope. The first time I was like they got 7% of it? No, but it's 0.7% of it. Um these guys just for instance like overstock who will allow you to pay in bitcoin. Uh those are the kind of the, the, those are the kind of entities that that were attracted to the futures market and it had reached a point where bitcoin was becoming institutionalized and when it becomes institutionalized you've got risk managers trying to figure out ways to offset that risk futures were a the futures market was a natural for that one yeah
1: i mean russell i think you're i think you're spot on and 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 there's a level of irony um to your point because the natural hedger would be the miners right the institutional miners yeah you would think one would think, right? But I haven't really seen them doing that, which surprises me. It's either all, and I'm hodling, never selling, and I'm just printing shares to pay my operating expenses, and eventually it'll be worth, you know, all the Bitcoin will be worth you know, hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars, whatever. Or
2: I'm selling every day or monthly, right? What's interesting with respect to the miners and is if let let's let's switch to gold for just a second uh the twins always like to refer to bitcoin as digital gold um if you're a gold miner uh you you know what your you know what your cost of extraction is going to be and you generally have a break even level that you want to make sure you can lock in and you can do that with the futures market i don't know enough about the cost structure of being a miner but i have a i have a funny feeling that you know if you if, it's, I, I was looking up some stats before we were doing this. Uh, about 900 Bitcoin are, are mined a day, you know. And if, and if you think you're going to get one percent of that, which you know, so you're going to get nine Bitcoin, uh, you know, that comes to what about $250,000 uh, worth of Bitcoin each day. If you think that using the algorithm and everything like that, I severely doubt that at current prices. They're concerned about not profiting off of the Bitcoin that they're able to win through the mining process. Uh, if, you know, if the if the cost of mining was 10 grand and the price uh, per Bitcoin and the uh, the price of Bitcoin right now is 11 or 12 thousand bucks. I'll bet you have miners that are a little bit more interested in hedging at least part of I, I started to say what they're pulling out of the ground, but what they're pulling out of the ether.
1: Well, yeah, there's a lot of regret that they call it mining, by the way. Yeah. Uh, um, it, it, basically, it's a data center operation
2: that's
1: paid in Bitcoin, right? And and you're, you're, you're spot on. I mean, 11000 it's too late to hedge, dude. You're losing money. <laughs> Probably, <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah, no, you're losing money at that point. And, and, and the way the business ends up working then is um, a lot of miners go offline and the difficulty rate um, goes down and people who are mining have a higher probability of of uh, winning that Bitcoin allocation, right? So the opposite occurs to your point, you know, as Bitcoin goes up, um, there's more, of the the farms or the the miners that come online, which is um, a a twist of irony, which makes for a situation where everybody's has to be constantly upgrading their facilities. Yeah. So that's that's part of the reason why actually, to your point, hedging would work or make sense. But it all depends on the expectation and trends within the context of Bitcoin. Um, So there's a lot of challenges.
2: What and what's kind of neat about we, everybody's been fixated on oil production. Just uh, that's that's been you know forefront of the news over the past couple of months. Um, taking you know taking a rig offline and then bringing it back up is not like flipping a switch. Bitcoin mining is like flipping a switch.
0: Oh, absolutely. You, know, you can
2: you can turn it on, turn it off. Um, you know, so I may, maybe it takes about as much time as it took to turn on one of those old tube TVs that you flipped on and it took a little while to, you know, you had to hit it a couple of times, I guess. I'm, I'm showing my age here, but you know what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah. And, and Joshua, coming back to your analogy on, on, uh, the futures contracts, you remember when oil was, was breaking down in 2020 during COVID and people were like, Oh my God, I really have to take delivery. And the tankers were all building up. in, yeah. in the, in the, in the water. Oh my God. You know, these are financial markets. There's always there's always lots of challenges, which is the reason why it's interesting.
0: Yeah, going back to to the the, the investment thesis of, of of this and thinking about, um, you know, the the decision to not be in crypto but be in in blockchain, is that connected to to your to your past as an investor? And what what did you what were you doing in the past that that led you into? Obviously, you took a new interest in blockchain. But what did you pull over from your pre- previous experience and insert into your, into your um, managing a, block, a blockchain portfolio, blockchain focused portfolio, versus what are, were the things you had to kind of develop based on this new technology you were looking to specialize in?
1: Yeah, you know, um, like almost 40 years in the business, you learn a lot, right, uh, over, over the periods of time. And when I first started out uh, in the business, I worked for a firm that had a venture capital portfolio. So you can check that box right here, because let's face it, you know some of what we're talking about is venture capital. And, and in Block, uh, we have a venture capital allocation um, as a result of certain companies that we're invested in. And Overstock, by the way, Russell is an example of that. Not because they hold Bitcoin, but because they're invested in, as an example, uh, a portfolio of companies that are developing blockchain technology. And Grain Chain is one of them, Joshua. And I'll come back to that one in the context of farming. Um, then, then you know, listen, you know, I, small cap. My small cap hedge fund experience and you know how to do due diligence taught me a lot, and I use that on a regular basis. And at the end of the day, you know, um, I use what I've learned in the way of ETFs um, to explain to people how an ETF works. So I, I guess I guess what I'm getting at is it's, it's a regular, you know, everyday
0: experience of tapping into your own personal ethos. Well, you know, you you uh, this portfolio is almost 50% small cap, right?
1: It's probably close to that, yeah. Depending on your definition, small cap, mid cap, it's got a, a fair amount of large cap exposure as well. Too don't 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 get me wrong. Um, definitely, it's got a to tilt towards growth.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that's what's expected of us, right? You know, from from an allocation perspective, it's a high beta strategy, candidly, and you would expect that of one that is um, um, looking to be correlated with the price action of Bitcoin, right? Um, and the miners, Russell, to your point, you know, have a lot to do with the volatility because of their business model. Um, they're highly correlated with the direction of Bitcoin. That's why, um, we own them. And of course, one of our larger positions is MicroStrategy, which is technically, I think, uh, a mid-cap more than anything else. I always think that, you know, when you invest in mid-caps, that's kind of the sweet spot of business because they're, they've got enough sophistication and infrastructure and experience with capital markets as a mid you know mid cap um, to know how to manage their balance sheet and grow and
0: enough heft with clients. and so they also have credibility. when, when you think about you know if someone's thinking about adding this you know this um, we call it I'm calling it an alternative in, in the sense that because that whole definition of what is an alternative is, the whole discussion in and of itself. So, in this situation, I'm, I'm defining it as something other than a stock or a bond that's publicly traded, right? Um, and yet, um, you know, these are stocks that you're doing that you're that you're, that you're going into, but they're something uh, that, that, that they're a emerging. They're based on an emerging technology, so mm-hmm. it's in, in, in some extent they're alternatives to your traditional um, traditional technology, even. Um, And obviously, your traditional manufacturing, production, all these other types of things, services. Um, So in a a sense of the word, it's alternative. But when someone's thinking about, I want access to something like this in my portfolio, the decision kind of comes down to, do I want to do crypto itself, coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, versus more invest in the technology behind it and how... Um, and how other companies and how these companies that you're investing in are helping other companies uh, utilize blockchain, these are two different investment theses. And as you are getting into blockchain, obviously, you made the decision not to be a manager of a crypto portfolio where you were deciding how much of this coin to own versus this coin to own you made the decision to go into blockchain and investing in in companies that were promoting blockchain, investing in, utilizing, pushing that technology forward. I'm curious what led you to go in that direction versus the actual cryptocurrency direction?
1: Well, to your point, um, somebody wants to own Bitcoin, they can do it, as Russell was highlighting, through futures. Um, They can buy certain ETFs that give them the exposure. Um, they don't need me, you know, it's just plain and simple. You know, if you if somebody wants to own Bitcoin, whether it's because of store of value or because of, they view it as a technology or disruptor or, you know, inflation hedge, whatever, or whatever you want to call it, right, as a thesis, I don't know that I can add a whole lot of value. That's their decision. And if they look out 10 years, it might be a wonderful decision. I find that from an institutional level, there's no question about blockchain, right? Um, Whether it's the banks that don't want it or the um, uh, venture capitalists who see it as a different way to do things, it's here. And because it's a technology that can be, you can program on it, it needs infrastructure it needs people it needs it needs an ecosystem to build it out for the future and, and when you look at block you know it's very much of a picks and axes type of strategy right um you know you're using i think the analogy on gold and you know when gold was just getting going right you needed shovels right but to get it out and and it's the same thesis right you you know I guess in 2018 particularly, um, when things just started getting exciting, you know, you needed trading desks and you needed the connectivity of the trading desks. And you know, we we made investments in like Coinbase as an example, which you know, somebody needs to
0: be part of the transactional process. And that's where the picks and axes come about. I understand what you when you what you say when you mean when you say people don't need you to buy Bitcoin and I understand that they don't need an, an investment advisor or a portfolio manager to buy it. I'm thinking more in terms of if someone says I have x amount of dollars or x amount of percentage of my portfolio that I want to invest in cryptocurrencies in. Yeah, they don't need you to, to purchase those cryptocurrencies, but they might want advice on which cryptocurrencies to buy. You know, should I do X percent of, of whatever my crypto allocation is, how much should be Bitcoin, Ethereum and everything else involved? So I think that there's you know, that's a direction you could have been as the guy as the guy advising which cryptos to buy and which percentages versus the which companies that are involved in the blockchain technology. Um, that's really the more I, the more 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 the direction I was going in, and I think you would be right, right, um,
1: particularly on an asset that is very volatile that goes through, you know, let's be honest about it, you know, great big bull markets and terrible bear markets, right? So that's where an advisor needs to integrate the the exposure that their client has to the space and make sure that they sometimes rebalance when, you know, they don't want to, right? You know, it's very, it's not so much fun to sell your winners. It's awful selling your losers, right? And and this is going to find, this as an asset class is going to go through some bulls, bull markets and some bear
0: markets, and people just need to be prepared about for that. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in your space, as, as you mentioned, highly correlated to the price of, of Bitcoin. Um, does, what does that tell you? What, how should that enlighten investors on, you know, am I, do I just feel like it, it would be, it's the same as, because it's, it's not the same as investing in crypto, you're investing in companies that are developing blockchain. Does that, should should we, is, is, do you see that as a safer investment, a, uh, just a different kind of investment or two different allocations within the same ballpark or the same uh, ballpark of cryptocurrency Blockchain, you know, th- this high correlation, the high correlation doesn't make it the same asset class, but that high correlation makes them feel a lot alike there. So do you see this as a different part of a portfolio than cryptocurrency or is it is it a choice between the two or the split between the two? What are your, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that over the next 10
1: years, you're going to see industries changed by blockchain, Right that's gonna have an effect on companies like Accenture and IBM, right? You know, these are companies that have been around for decades, if not hundreds of years, right? It's an opportunity set. And we dial up our exposure and dial down our exposure on those types of companies um, when we want to lower or, or raise risk, right? When we want to um, lower risk, we, we might add to them, right? When we want to raise the risk or the opportunity, because we think Bitcoin is going to go higher, we'll own the miners, as, as an example. And that that exposure has ranged from about 8%, 9% to up to 30% at the peak of Bitcoin price. And last year, around November, December, we were around 8 9%. Um, on it. And now in the way of Bitcoin miners we're about
0: at twenty percent. So your allocation to miners has has doubled since the end of last year. Is that, is that what I
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough it's a tough thing to swallow. Yeah. But I'm glad we did it, right? You know, because uh that's why, you know, we got the performance that we got um you know, so far this year. In part. I mean we've done some other things besides that. But uh, the interesting part about your your point about Alternatives, in, in the midst of what was happening with the regional banks, um, Bitcoin created you know, a buffer to, in our portfolio, right, because it looked like the market was, the equity market was going to collapse as a result of the banking crisis that was coming about, and Bitcoin at its core is kind of like the antithesis of that, right? And so Bitcoin was going up, the miners were going up and creating a a buffer or a hedge on our portfolio. And while while that felt great, you know, exactly whether or not Bitcoin is a quote and our portfolio is a quote uh, alternative, um, you know, is kind of a question. It's certainly an alternative to Investing in the S and P 500, which ironically, you know, candidly is is pretty expensive right now in terms of multiples. Um, So it's the twist on all this to me is I'll just present the question: If you're a fiduciary, why is it that you feel so comfortable with how the S and P is valued right now? and how it might perform on a go forward basis. Um, and I think if you look at it in, in the way that it's so concentrated on the, the on, on its top five holdings, right? You run the risk that, wait, you know, law of large numbers may lead to the SP not performing to a lot of folks' expectations. Whereas in the case of Block, you know that you're taking on risk um, because of what's happening within the context of the blockchain
2: and crypto. Uh, I was looking at your geographic breakdown. What's wrong with Europe? Yeah. Do they just not care about blockchain over there? <laughs> just, yeah. I, and, you know, and, and, you know I, I, I said that kind of tongue in cheek, but no, it's a good you know, we do think, I mean, you know, they they mine the, mine the heck out of Bitcoin over in Korea. China changes rules every once in a while, but there's a lot of interest in that part of the world. It, it just, it, this is the first time it's popped in my mind that it looks like nobody in Europe really cares about Bitcoin or blockchain that much. So, and I apologize for throwing one out a left field at you, but because I, I never really thought about that one either. That's why I'm asking you instead of no. It's, a comment it's, it's about a, it. it's a great question, and there there are about 300
1: companies in our database that we're doing due diligence on. And I will unfortunately tell you that very few are are based in Europe. Um, I'm going to have to look into that to tell you the truth as to why that is, because um, it, it may be just what's available in the public markets. It may not be
2: because it's not happening. You know, we're a very, I mean, they don't day trade stocks in Europe. In a nutshell, they just I I mean, I, you know, worked with uh, exchanges over there, and they would love to get the retail participation that we have in the United States. Um, So I my and this is me kind of answering my question as I'm thinking it through. Uh, We love to trade over here. They, They love to trade over in Asia. Europe's a bunch of long term investors. In fact, most people, they don't even own stocks, they just own bonds for their retirement. So it may be it may be part of that more of a trading culture in the U.S. and in Asia versus versus Europe. Maybe, you know,
1: but to your point, you know, in Canada, they trade. Right. So sure enough, there there are a couple of companies that are in our um, in our database that are involved with facilitating the trading aspect of, of, um, you know, the crypto and and uh, in Japan, for sure, they're trading. Oh, yeah. To your point. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think I know what like three of your top ten holdings are out of Japan, or it depends on the date, I guess. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Dan, when you think about, um, yeah, you know, active management, and you you, know, you you alluded to a little bit of it a minute ago when you said you'd, you'd moved more into miners, and you explained why. Can you give us uh, kind of an explanation of kind of the core parts of a of a portfolio that is. Crypto, not crypto, um, blockchain focused and why you would, you know, first of all, what are the main parts, miners and the other things, the main parts of the portfolio and what would cause how you typically think of uh, how it would cause you to make changes in the way you allocate? Yeah,
1: well, I mean, every week we're, we're talking to companies and uh, sometimes traveling, visiting companies. So um, I, I really enjoy talking to management teams. Um and, and sometimes, frankly, we've found out things about other companies from other management teams. So that can lead us to make making changes. Um, on the top end of the spectrum, um, when something gets to be like a 5.5% uh, position, right, we will be looking at trimming it. We're, we're trying to be risk managers here and avoid you know, substantial blow-ups by having too much concentration in the portfolio. So you can you can look to us to have someplace between 40 and 60 positions in the portfolio. And, you know, we'll start off with a 50 to 100 basis point position. And, you know, sometimes, you know, take us six months to get that much more comfortable to increase that position. And that comes with time and, and, and further research, you know, you know. Um, we like to think that in talking to companies, we're hearing what they plan to do, and then we're watching them do it, right? And I think think that's an important part of due diligence, because a lot of these companies are relatively new in the space, and certainly the space is new anyway, right? Um, So there are lots and lots of challenges in regards to the due diligence process, candidly, the due diligence that I've I've been doing these past three four years on on the space has brought me into situations that I'd never ever expected, um, and and that just keeps me very busy. Now there are seven categories um, called classifications. You know, there's the transactional side, there's which is roughly twenty five percent. There's the application side, right? So it's like software. There's conglomerates, which you'll find uh, a fair number of the Japanese companies in Russell. Um, The direct exposure is about 10%. Okay. Um, And the conglomerates, by the way, just by way of background, is about seven. Semiconductors obviously play a role in this industry. um, And that's you know 4% right now. Um, And somebody might wonder why. It, it's so low. It's been as high as 10 or 12. And, and, and part of the reason is there's a, a massive surplus of mining equipment on the market right now, which is a function clearly of last year. Right. You know, um, and the irony of it is it's an opportunity for the miners to pick up cheap equipment, which is an important part of their costs. Right. in building out a facility. Um, so it's actually a plus is what I'm trying to say to you, right? Um, and then there's like private blockchain um, as a category of like 9%. So we'll move around in the categories. They're not rigid in terms of weighting schemes. Um, we like to think that we, when we put on a position as a core holding, it's um, been in our database for a super long time. Um, we've watched it. Um, we've monitored it and we've talked to management teams and we understand what the outcome would be. So that'd be like a 1%. And then when something gets to be two, we'll even add to it further up to three and that becomes a core holding. Right. So, you know, where we are selling, you know, how we enter at this point.
0: Yeah. that make, makes sense. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. You you mentioned, you know, the, the, the private um, blockchain and, I want to ask, how do you see the balance between public and private blockchains evolving in the future? But first, I should probably ask you to define public versus private for for those who may not be familiar. I mean, like Honeywell, believe it or not, was a private blockchain company. So
1: what does that mean? It, it, it borders on kind of like big data where things are put on chain and kept tracked on, kept track on, you know, that um, and and. Public means everybody can see it,
0: right? Nobody controls it. Uh, what's um, tell me about your, your your other hobbies and interests you have, Dan, that have kind of looped in or have incorporated this interest in blockchain? Are there, do, you, do you notice any any overlap in your life between your interests and and getting in the and, and specifically blockchain? My interests, I
1: would say, just as an entrepreneur, I've always been fascinating with how industries. And uh, businesses will be disrupted. Um, it's just my core DNA, I, I think. Um, so uh, that as far as interests go, you know you, you've met my dog virtually.. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he keeps me busy. Um, love to swim. and you know, I love to read a lot of new stuff. On a constant basis.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of disrupting, um, this is uh taken on a, a very different route of disrupting, but how do you how do you foresee the regulatory trends um, blockchain and cryptocurrency based portfolios? How do you see regulatory trends impacting what you're doing?
1: Yeah, that's 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 almost the most important question here in the US right now. I hope we don't blow it. I really do. There seems to be an agenda out there. Um, maybe it's just because of the thesis behind who decentralized finance hurts, right? So there's a lot of lobbyist groups that are, are trying to create problems um, for the chain, right? Um, it does not feel like, to my surprise, Gary Gensler is our friend in, in the way of crypto. I mean... Which is really kind of surprising, um, given his history. But yeah, didn't
2: didn't you think he was going to be positive when he? I, I was. I remember when he got named, and I was like, "This is good for crypto." And oh my god, Russell, somebody 100%, got to him.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. Now, who, who did is always the question. Um, but I think I don't. I don't question that he's an honorable guy. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. That was a joke. That.
2: That was totally, yeah, but, but it seems but like his attitude did change. He,
1: he's, yeah, he's t- definitely done a 180. There's no question about it. Um, and, and it is, it, it's frustrating because, you know, listen, um, I think they're brave, but other people think they're just serving their self-interest. But hey, listen, everybody does that. So I'm just thankful that you have certain people, whether it's Coinbase or, or frankly Galaxy, who are willing to be regulated, who are anxious to be regulated, who are begging for guidance from our regulators.
2: And um, it's not what's happening. I've done some outreach with institutions with respect to what's keeping you out of crypto. And typically it's uh, uncertainty around regulatory. They, they want uh, you know a structured regulatory environment and they don't want it changing on them. And that's, that, that's still the number one reason that institutions are not involved in the space. It is. And why wouldn't it be, right? You know, uh, I,
1: I've talked to Michael Saylor a number of times and, you know, he did what he did because he could do it and he believed in the disruption, right? Now, why could he do it? He could do it versus other folks because through his special class of stock, is. Um, he controlled the company and so he went through the appropriate measures to go to the board and ask permission and, and, uh, the board said we can do it, but we want to do a Dutch tender first. So everybody's clear what we intend to do. And then he's moved very incrementally. Right. But why did he have to do it is a different question, right? And. I think part of the reason why he had to do it, at least according to his judgment, is he had to make a choice between, um, you know, spending his $500 million at the time on a company that he could buy. Um, Couldn't really buy his stock back because there was so much cash. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. The company really wasn't growing. Um, So he felt that this was a less risky strategy then, you know, spending $500 million and trying to integrate, I don't know, a billion dollar company into his current company, right? Oh, and by the way, he believes in Bitcoin. So that's that was very evident as well. And the funny part on it all is, talk about regulation, what an awful scenario where you buy something and on your balance sheet, it can only go down, even if it goes up on your balance sheet, it can only get marked down. You know That's the way Bitcoin is priced currently on his balance sheet and other companies that are public. So immediately um, at the lowest price, it gets priced that level. So his Bitcoin on his balance sheet is priced at like, I think it's 15,000, 15,600, even though it might be at 25 or 30,000. It's very difficult to explain that to shareholders, right? Now, in June, maybe July, FASB's um, expected to uh, respond to rulings about being able to mark to market on Bitcoin. And whether that changes how other firms take a position on Bitcoin is open for discussion. But very few fiduciaries at the corporate level, with so much regulatory scrutiny, are going to be willing to step up and buy Bitcoin as a store of value um, right now um, when they might get, well, a Wells notice for whatever reason, as was the case, I think by Coinbase as an example.
0: Well, that reminds me of the, the, you know, the behavioral aspect of it as well is, how do you deal with criticism? Because, you know, if you're an asset manager, you're, you're an advisor and you're thinking of how am I going to explain this to my investors? One of the, some of the feedback I've heard and asking advisors about this sort of thing and other similar investments is if I invest in the S&P 500 and it doesn't perform well, well, it's an easier conversation than if I invest in this other thing. And it doesn't perform well because it wasn't the S and P five hundred. It wasn't the safest stocks. It wasn't the dividend payers. It wasn't uh, the 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 common the common wisdom. It was doing something different. And you know this kind of goes back to you know the criticism of you know a lot of fund managers, which is well, most managers don't beat the index. Well, you know the you don't get fired for head for hugging the index. You get hu- you get fired for. Um, underperforming the index. And if you underperform the if you take risks, the type of risks that allow you the opportunity to outperform the index are the same risks that would give you potential to underperform the index, right? And when and, and this has caused a lot of extra underperformance over the years because you know, if you're an active manager and you're trying to to have a truly diversified portfolio you're not loading up on the biggest stocks in the market. And yet it's the biggest uh, you know, half dozen or so stocks in the market um, that have driven a lot of the price appreciation of the S&P 500. And we're all talking about it recently, but it's not, overall, it's not recent, right? This has been happening for a long time that the biggest names have driven a lot of the market. So it puts active managers in a very tight position where I've got to do something that in order to keep up with the market, I've got to do things that as a fiduciary, I don't feel like are appropriate in owning this much, of, but the, that's what the index owns, um, you know. which obviously gets you into conversations about equal weighting and things like that and inverse weighting, all these other weight ways of weighting that again, you can make all the case in the world, but at the end of the day, if they underperform the S&P 500, the criticism is gonna be, well, why didn't you do this? You could, I could have just owned the S&P 500. And so I think that that's where a lot of this comes from is, is you, know, you do something different that is not the S&P 500. No matter what the S&P 500 is doing, at the end of the day, you're defending it against the S&P 500. And if, and if the S&P 500, if you act like, and this is what you're doing, is you're acting like it's a steady risk. Well, it's the S and P five hundred. Well, the S and P five hundred does not always have the same amount of risk as it has other times, right? But that, that but that doesn't feel correct. It doesn't feel correct to think that the S and P five hundred is more risky at certain times than it is in other times. Just that that doesn't feel accurate, right? So, you, anytime you are comparing it to something like that, who's has the the feeling of being consistently risky. But in reality, it's not consistently risky because you're pointing out the S&P 500, the risk in the S&P 500 is not constant. But that's not something that feels correct. And that's not something that the average person is thinking is, oh, the risk in the S&P 500 has, has gone up compared to these other investments. And I invested in something that technically may be less risky or that gap in the risk has increased between these two compare, two investments we're comparing. Um, that doesn't feel correct. So I think that the risk is not just in underperformance, but in the criticism of uh, of, of, of potential for, for underperformance there. So the first
1: question is, if you're investing in the S&P 500
0: today, you're making a bet
1: that Apple... Um, at 7, 8% weighting, right? Um, that's up, basically a third this year. That means that it's created $800 billion of market value, is going to create another $800 billion of market value. So that's a pretty big bet in the context of law of large numbers, right? And in order to do that, you're making a bet that Apple um, is going to come up with a new product that is going to be explosive, because that's what they need to do, right? And and, and arguably, Microsoft has the same headwinds. The alternative is that you're making a bet that market breadth is going to broaden out. And that might happen. I hope it does happen, right? And in order to do that, maybe we have a real short recession. Um, I think we're going to have a recession. I think it's reasonable to expect it. And we're also going to get inflation under control. Those, Those are situations we need to have in order for the overall market to do well in the near term, near term meaning in 2023 and 2024, for that matter. So... Then the other point that I would make is, well, I mean, an advisor gets paid to do something. One, to do the wealth planning that is necessary, right, so that it keeps people uh, on point with their goals, and then also add value with security selection. If you go on my Twitter account, we haven't mentioned that, I'm the ETF professor, right? And I'm always talking about how structure matters. Yeah. Structure matters in the context of, of Portfolio goals, wealth planning, et cetera, right? Um, structure matters in how a company is set up. Um, whether something is an ETF versus a um, you know a partnership versus other 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 types of structures. I think my answer to your your question ultimately is um, that advisor may not get criticized for owning the S and P, but I mean really how much S&P are they going to own? They're going to own 10% S&P. They're going to own 20% S&P. You've got to have some diversification, right? Whether it's in the alternatives bucket and consider block, you know, one, 2% allocation, maybe three or commodities or, or, you know, a hedge fund type of um, uh, solution um, or fixed income, right? And fixed income, you'll, you'll, Hear um, or read about um, how um, uh, family offices recently upped their exposure to fixed income because I mean, you can get a four or five percent, six percent yield and lock it in. And why wouldn't you want that, right? Well, you might not want that because you think inflation is going to accelerate from here. Um, But you need to be diversified. So I think advisors. Need to be doing due diligence on a constant basis on how they can add value from a security selection standpoint, and that's what structure matters. Yeah. Sorry if I preached.
0: No, no, no. I, I, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. Um, and by the way, uh, let's let's let, it, let let's promote your Twitter um, ETF. It is at ETF Professor, correct? Yeah. Absolutely, uh, Russell yes, sir. Going, going to you uh, for anything. And, and by the way, uh, as you're thinking there for a second, one of the things I want to make sure that our listeners understand is we kind of glossed over this, but uh, in the S and P 500, you know, you, you hear, well, that's the biggest 500 companies in America. And so it's a very well diversified portfolio of companies. But when we say that we forget that it is uh, market cap weighted and advisors know this, but a lot of times clients, uh, forget or, or not aware, and, and just the top few companies in the market, um, by market cap, we mean how how big is the company, um, and Apple is about 7.5% of the S&P 500, so if you own an S&P 500 ETF, about 7.5% of that is invested in Apple, another 7% or so is in Microsoft and Amazon, NVIDIA, Google, or Alphabet, A and B. Uh, or A and C, I guess, but just those top four stocks, I believe, are about twenty percent of the index now. Just the top four stocks, and by the time you get through Google and Facebook, you're probably at twenty five percent of the index, just on six stocks. And so, if you have Apple that's having a tear of a year, um, and a couple of other of those of those stocks that are that are performing extremely well, that can really carry the entire index. And a lot of stocks can be down a little bit or not moving at all, but the index can still be up just because they have such a high weight in the index. And that's what he's referring to here is, um, you know, how long can a stock like that continue to go up dramatically? And, you know, especially if you're you you do you expect those stocks to continue to create value at that rapid rate? or do you believe that they may level off and all the other stocks are going to then carry the performance so that's the situation that you run into
2: i'm choosing number two i think the i think the smaller cap stocks are going to catch up with the larger cap stocks um yeah yeah yeah. i'm looking at the top holdings of the s p the top seven are basically fang stocks and microsoft and nvidia um you know, if you if you think the rest of them are going to play catch up, uh, heck, short the Nasdaq and buy the S and P 500. <laughs> I'm dead serious.
0: <laughs> <And it doesn't laughs> it sounds like NASDAQ. I'm joking, but <laughs> the Nasdaq has continued to run here. Short, the, short the
2: Nasdaq and buy the. If you if you think the re, if if you like that scenario that Josh just put out there that uh, the other stock, and I actually do think the st- the other stock, it's time for the other stocks to maybe be doing some catching up. Or if we turn to the downside, not get hit as hard as some of these stocks that have had quite a run. Um, so but yeah, short them or just buy a small cap index. Or you choose an actively active manager. Active manager has good ideas and has insights like the uh the the there's extra mining equipment out there and knowing who it's good for and knowing who it's bad for. I love when I'm on a podcast and I learn something and I've totally learned that one today. And there's a lot of sense to that one.
0: Well, that's the funny thing about active and passive too, is, you know, with a, with, with a passive index, the goal is to do exactly what the market does when you're, when you're in a, in a, in a passive ETF. And so if the market's down 40%, your goal is to be down 40% that you want to you hug the index, right? That's the goal. So at least with active, you are, you're making the, um, you're you're trying to do something besides just do it the whatever the the index does. You actually are trying to beat the index, and you can make those decisions uh, to uh, overweight the top end of the index or the bottom end, if we're just talking about market cap. Uh, or you can, in, in Dan's uh, case, as he was talking about, decide if you're managing a blockchain portfolio to lean more towards miners uh, for one reason or another, or t- more towards the other uh, the other ends of the or the other uh, groupings that you, that you brought those together as well.
1: Well, The other point that I'd make is in the way of why we, why did we go active versus passive?
0: Yeah. Right? Great question. Yeah, know, you know, go. And,
1: and a lot of it was because we wanted to offer diversified um, uh, opportunity because we saw that it was going to change so many different companies, right. Over time, right. Versus the passive side, where what you end up getting is very, a very concentrated portfolio, where you've got some names that are representing eight, nine, 10% of, of, of the value, right? Well, you know what, if you've got four names that represent 40% of, of your portfolio, you better know those names. Right. Because you don't have a portfolio manager who's done the analysis on those names. You have an index provider who's randomly, you know, maybe thoughtfully, but isn't making changes on a, on, on a ad hoc basis when the risks change. Right? You have to be doing that. And I don't think that most people look at it that way,
0: unfortunately. Yeah. when You don't look at it as I live and die by Apple. When you buy the s&p 500 right
1: no you don't but 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 in in a high highly beta environment right um like in the case of you know the blockchain you're you're making a bet that that index provider um who doesn't really care about beta they just care about access to beta you know has the right waiting for the moment in time that's your that's your bet right so you have when you make that allocation, you have to know what they're long, and should have done the due diligence around that. And by the way, to that point further, I would say that you know very often when I've done research around ETFs, I've found that um, certain ETFs have different exposures despite trying to do the same thing, right? Yeah. I mean, how how odd is that to think about?
0: Yeah. Well, this is this is the, the, one of the big debates in ESG, right? What does ESG mean? mean, mean? Yeah. Well, it, it depends on who you ask, right? Sure. And and by the way, and I wanted to make sure that our listeners understand that you know when we when we speak of an index like the S and P 500, and then we also talk about other indexes when you talk, you're talking about passive ETFs or passive uh, mutual funds. An index like the S and P 500, no one the so if you're buying an S and P 500 index ETF, the provider is not making decisions, right? This is a cap weighted index, so whoever has the highest cap weighting is going ha- to be the, is going to be who most of the money is in. So when we're saying Apple's number one, it's not because anyone decided, um, any, any one manager decided. That's what passive means. But an index provider can create their own index, and they define, here's how we put this index together, and it's going to be an index defined by whatever criteria we want to put together, right? We can say, well, it must be companies between this size and this size, and they must be invested in this sector and this sector. So They they can create an index, and in that way, they are making decisions, which is what Dan is referring to, right? And this is where it can be kind of blurry and where expertise comes in because there's a big difference in saying, well, I'm in a truly, truly passive cap weighted index. that is the S&P 500 versus a technically passive ETF, but I've put together an index that I've made decisions as, a, as, the, as the index manager about what will go into this index because that index is what's going to determine, the, determine what goes into it, right? And so that's still different than an active manager who's not deciding this is here's the criteria. They're actually actively saying, "I want to change this, take this in, take this out, change this allocation, that sort of thing." And so I think that in between can be very messy for folks to understand when you hear index. Is there the index like an S and P five hundred cap weighted? We all know based on the calc- based on. Anyone can look up what a cap weighting is and know what the percentage will be based on that versus these decisions that are made on more of an active basis, right?
1: The best way to highlight the issue, Joshua, is um, in the bond portfolio. I know we've been talking about equities, but how is it possible that um, it is better to overweight um, a bond portfolio based upon the, the um, debt being more outstanding, right? I mean, think about that, right? Yeah, I,
2: Russell, like- Yeah, no, I have already right? had thinking about that one. But,
1: but I mean, rationalize that, okay, great. This company has $10 billion of debt. Oh, they just raised another 2 billion. We should increase the exposure on that because that's the construction, right? Yeah. It's upside down. Yeah. You, you know, and,
0: and you yeah. have to be aware of these issues when you're investing. And, and, and I think easy money fact, factors into that as well, lower interest rates, right? Because when you're in a cap-weighted index, and, in, and I, I feel like in the last few minutes, it sounds like I'm, S, I'm anti-S&P 500. I'm not. <laughs> uh, it's just explaining the differences. But it, 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 in that same capacity, it's like saying, well, this stock went up in value, Therefore, we should own more of it. And so that's what buying an S&P 500 index ETF would do for you today. It's saying the, the stocks that have performed the best are the ones you should buy the most of because compared to last year. Because, because they've gone up in value, you should own more of them. And if you're buying a bond ETF, because this company has issued more debt, we should own more of their debt. That doesn't necessarily make sense in, in real life at all because you've gone further into debt that we want to invest more in your debt. We want to enable you to do that. So some of these things um, can be very counterintuitive. And I think that the, the, the scary thing about this is I think being in an easy money environment for so long has made passive um, very attractive because as long as there's more money and as long as it's easy and as long as the... you, you Easy money means businesses that shouldn't make it, make it. And it means projects that you shouldn't invest, that you normally shouldn't invest in, you should invest in. Because, you know, if you, if you can get money for zero and make 5% on it, that's incredible, right? Well, you take that every day. But in a normal situation, that hurdle rate there is not something that's sustainable, right? So I think this, the easy money um, situation and going to a more um, more difficult environment and even thinking about now, if we're at you know the the peak of um, of interest rates, and it looks like now that we may have one more, who knows? But I think at that point, when we start thinking about interest rates peaking and going down, we're now in a very different environment um, where it gives active managers probably uh, more opportunity to shine. And we did see that last year with more active man- managers uh, doing much better and. Uh, but yeah, I think, uh, the easier things is the easier it is to be passive because that rising tide of easy money, uh, tends to carry all ships uh, upward and, uh, but it gets to a point where, you know, it's not so easy. And in those, in those environments, being a little bit more thoughtful with your asset allocation and advisors looking for opportunity to truly add value beyond just indexing is something that, uh. I expected to see, and I'm definitely seeing at a lot of the conferences. And this looking for more active, looking for alternative ways of generating uh, diversification and uh, and appreciation and and other things. Agreed, Dan. Um, what other thought? What, what what are you looking at next? Uh, as, we, as we kind of wind down the conversation here, what what are your eyes on? What's got you? What What's What are you concerned about, or what are you looking at? Give us Give us some uh, some foreshadowing of the next six months to a year. Yeah. So in the
1: in the way of blockchain, I am um, uh, constantly looking forward to the innovation that's taking place in this space, um, as as you know, disrupting um, uh, the way businesses in a positive way um, are, are going to change because um, blockchain lowers the cost of doing business. We didn't touch on that, but that's part of the technology that's behind it and, and equalizes the opportunity for um, entrepreneurship. Um, I, I'm, I'm very concerned about regulation. I mean, I'd be lying if, if uh, I didn't highlight that, Um I think, though, the optimist in me um, says that at some level, um, we'll find the right balance on regulation because candidly, we, I don't know that here in the US, we can afford to miss the opportunity, um, you know, because it is a technology leap. Um, and, and I think if we miss it, we've got bigger problems than whether it's a store of value or not. If we miss it, um, other entities um will pull ahead. Um now before I sound like pessimistic about that, I would say just just remember, um here in the US, we've we've got a great history of when we get the direction right, accelerating and stepping on the pedal. So um it's I'm really watching it very closely regulation um and so thanks for having me uh it's been a as you promised a a fun discussion i hope it's fun for everybody else who's listening and um please you know everybody out there follow me on etf professor on twitter and and feel free to reach out to me and connect on linkedin too because uh i actually think that's that's a powerful tool as well
0: absolutely well thank you so much dan for joining us today it's been a pleasure to have you and russell again thank you for being with us as usual my co-host um and uh, thank you everyone for joining us today have a great week bye 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 thank you